Hey, welcome to Stirring Faith with Cherry Strange. Thank you for joining me today. Stirring Faith aims to lead women to desire more of God in their everyday life, making Him evident and desirable to others. Now, let's get started. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I just received a note in my email from the vet that it's time for my dogs to go in for their shots. And I really can't believe it, but it's true. Uh, Hours before we went into lockdown or whatever you want to call it, I drove to San Antonio and picked up those scruffy puppies. It doesn't even seem that long ago, but again, does it ever. I don't know how you look back on our days of sheltering in place or lockdown, whatever you want to call it. Believe it or not, two-thirds of Americans believe that our quarantine or sheltering in place time made them a better person. And with Corona, the company Uber Eats that does all the deliveries saw a significant upward swing. The most popular dish that was delivered in Texas was Pad Thai, but that's not what I would expect at all. I would think that we would hang with Arizona, Florida, Oregon, South Carolina, wanting French fries. That was what was delivered most from those states. Actually, uh, we weren't the greatest state that ordered the most food. That was New York City. New York City residents spent the most money on food delivery. The average New Yorker actually spent $773. <laughs> That's a lot of money on ordering out for food. And it might interest you to know, along the food lines, two-thirds of Americans eat pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. I don't know if you knew that, but they actually do. Uh, if you were thinking about what the most popular fast food restaurant is in America, that would be Subway. I was not going to guess that. If you had asked me that, I would have said something else, McDonald's or something, but McDonald's is not even second. But the most popular in 21 states is Chick-fil-A. 6% of Americans like hard-boiled eggs. That's not very many of us, but 6% do. And for my friend Holly, uh, 3% likes licorice. She's in the 3%. So... 34% of Americans, however, are really excited right now because spring is their favorite season. So I thought you just might want to know some random facts for me today. Another thing that we've come to know about the current population is that two-thirds of Americans doubt their faith at some point. Uh, They doubt it for a number of reasons. Maybe they don't see any movement and there's no evidence of a good and glorious God in the world and so they they doubt it that way it could be that god has been educated out of the realm of possibility the intellect is called into a question just for believing in god and since you know you're smarter than the average bear you question just how deep you want to go into christianity that's a possibility maybe things have happened in life that just don't make any sense and how can a good god love you and still put you through all that pain or cause you to endure someone else's pain or their mistakes. That would be a big one. Perhaps you have doubts that run on a grander scale. You know, you ask things like, if he's so big and powerful, why are there natural disasters? Or why does he allow such evil in the world? Those are big questions that people have. What if this whole Jesus thing is just more of a family tradition? It's more their faith than yours, making it easier to participate when it's convenient and abstain when it's not. Or it's just something that you do with friends and you doubt the authenticity and relevancy it has for you personally. That could very much cause you to doubt your faith. What do you do when you have your own qualms or your own doubts about Christianity and, and what you believe? 
The numbers are sobering. I mean, two-thirds doubt their faith, and you're swimming in a classic time and place for individuals to do that, to leave their faith small, unexercised, even defeated, and ultimately choosing to walk away from it unless they can catch hold of some unshakable truths that Jesus taught. Number one, he will not leave you. Matthew 28 20 speaks of this where he says, uh, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then another truth is that he is able. Uh, in Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looks at them and, and replies to his disciples with man, this is impossible. The thing they were asking about, but with God, all things are possible. And that only he can make you what you ought to be. He's the only one who can transform a life. And he is able to do that. Those are unshakable truths. He has a plan for your life and he means to work the plan. Today, what I want to do is encourage you if you are in a doubtful place. And I want to equip you for conversations and encounters that you might have with other believers who may at some point doubt their faith and seek you out for guidance because that's what we know happens. They are not necessarily going to uh, look something up Uh, on the internet or go to their pastor they're going to seek out a friend and you want to be prepared for that so I'm just asking that God would embolden you through his word to trust him with your life with your talents with your failures and your availability that he can meet every situation in which he's called you into now by the time I was probably in college I had doubts of my own I can totally relate to this my doubts centered around my conceptions of God. I was disappointed in how he had been managing my life and felt that if I were only different, then he would love me more and my life would work out too, like those around me. My expectations for my future and what God was willing to do for me and in me and through me were limited at best. He was the God of the Bible for other people, not for me. And my experiences confirmed my bad theology. You see, my God was small enough to fit in a shoebox. He was like a pop tent Jesus. I could just squeeze him in there and then pop him out when I needed to. He was portable. He could just seem sort of big, but not someone I could really rely on when I needed something. He was just going to let me down at the core of my being. He was not going to come through for me. He would come through for you, but It was just something about coming through for me. I just wasn't sure he could do it. And I carried that box around uh, through college and beyond. And I don't know if any of that resonates with you. Maybe you've already gone through enough disappointment by now to know what it's like to be distrustful with a mind littered with doubts and even indifference so that your God can fit in the box as well. Frankly, for me, no one was willing to call me on the carpet about aligning my life with this portable God in a box. I kept it pretty hidden, nor were they successful in correcting my errors by obliterating my God in the box, showing me that he was big enough, helping me catch a vision of who he wanted to be in my life. So today we're not headed to a typical Sunday school story. Let me just set it up for you. The Israelites, God's people, have lost the promised land. That's kind of where we're going. The Assyrians had taken over the larger kingdom, Israel, and a few years later, the Babylonians took over Judah, which housed the city of Jerusalem. The people were deported to Babylon, and they're known as the exiles. 
And these exiles, these people who were taken to other countries, are the same people Jeremiah pleads with in a letter while they're in Babylon to settle down, to get married, have a few kids. It's going to be a while. It's going to be 70 years. Awful stuff has happened to these people because of their unfaithfulness. And here Jeremiah assures them that God has not forgotten them, that he's going to bring them back and says to them something very familiar. Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Over the next 60 years or so, this very thing goes on. And a new king comes to power in Babylon named Cyrus. God uses Cyrus to bring about what only God can. The Bible says Cyrus, the king of Persia, announces to the people that God has given him all the kingdoms of the earth. And what he wants to do now is whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem can go. And they're going to take all the stuff with them and they're going to offer offerings into the house of God that they're going to rebuild. So, more than 42,000 people (laughs) set out with all the stuff Nebuchadnezzar stole with official notes for getting all that they needed, all the supplies they needed, provided, and their mission was to rebuild the temple. It's exactly what they were told was going to happen. God's word fulfilled in perfect timing. They get busy immediately. And within a year, they have reinstated the sacrifices, the altar, all the positions of the people who are supposed to be working down there, and they rebuilt the foundation. They're so excited, they gather together to rejoice. But understand, most of these people have only known captivity. It's been 70 years. They don't know the power or the person of God. All they've known is captivity and hardship and limitations. So when some locals come and make trouble, it sort of fits with the experience of who God is and what he does in their lives. So it fits in their God box. But by this time, Cyrus is gone and now sits a king named Xerxes, who we know is the guy who marries Esther. These troublemakers craft a letter that they send to the king telling him all sorts of half-truths. Xerxes simply responds to the information he's given and he calls him to stop, to stop working. So they do stop, and the work of the house of the Lord is stopped until the second year of Darius. And we get this information from Ezra. It's at that moment that a crisis occurs. The exiles were given direct instructions to go back and rebuild. That's what they went to do. Access and the needs were supplied to do the work, but now all it's thrown out the window, and they're made to stop by force. What are they supposed to do? I mean, what can they do? Well, they all went home. And they started doing their own thing. And it just didn't make any sense. I mean, why would God bring them back, open all the doors, provide all the resources, and bam, strip it all away? Oh, maybe we heard him wrong. Maybe we're too sinful, too inadequate for him to use. And maybe we're not worth restoring after all. Maybe he's not able. By the time they've got their own panels and mud up in their own houses... Their God is small, ineffective, portable, and efficient to carry around in their boxes as they need. Well, they stay there in that place, not doing what God's called them to do, not becoming who He has designed them to be, but rather reinforcing their theology with their experience for the next 16 years. Until Haggai the prophet showed up with the word from the Lord to confront them about their God-in-the-box lifestyle and mentality and blows it to smithereens. He says, hold up. Exactly who told you to go home and mind your own business. He says, Is this a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? In Haggai chapter 1. While the house of the Lord lies in ruins, thus said the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. 
Go up into the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And then God says this important phrase, I am with you, declares the Lord. He says it again in the next chapter, confirming his words in the first work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. And that's Haggai chapter 2. What does this mean for for you and for me today? Well, I think it means just because it's not working out doesn't mean God is not in it or that you can't do it. It doesn't mean he's not faithful. It doesn't mean you didn't hear correctly. It doesn't mean he loves other people more than you. It points to the same God across the Bible who promises to be with you, not like those who have let you down in the past. And he's better than the spitting, secret, handshake, peaky promise variety that you've known in the past. Hebrews offers some direction on how to live a godly life and then reminds us of this unchanging, unshakable quality of God. In Hebrews 13, 5, we get these words. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But I sort of like this verse in the Amplified Version. It says it like this. For he, God, himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down. Relax my hold on you assuredly not. Now both carry strong language to communicate absolutes about God's promise to be present in your life. The Amplified just expounds upon the profundity of the meaning the words cannot convey in English. You know what this language is also communicating? Get me out of your box. Yes, that's to me and to you. Quit carrying me around like an extra thing you can pick up when it's convenient and leave in your room or your car or in the kitchen or at home when it's not convenient. Stop trying to make me fit into your framework of what God should be like. Two-thirds of Christians might ask, then what do I do about the bad stuff that has happened to me? The disappointments and the pain and the pieces that don't fit. Let's see if I can help address it with an example. There was a young man who had been in church all his life. He knew all the right Sunday school answers, carrying around a portable God. He had heard the gospel hundreds of times before. He walked dutifully to church every week out of habit and social responsibility. But on this particular day, there was a wicked snowstorm and he physically couldn't get to his church. He saw another church on a side street on the way, and so he turned in there to get out of the storm and just be done with it. What did it matter? There were only about 15 people present, and it was not his brand of religion. The regular pastor wasn't even there. Instead, another man stood in his place. This man was not so bright. He pretty much stuck to his text for 20 minutes, which was only two lines, which he kept saying over and over again. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45:22. This is a quote from the young man. He did not even pronounce the words correctly, and he just kept repeating them over and over again until he looked at me and said, Son, you look miserable. And the guy said, And I did. Said the young man. He told me I would stay miserable and live a miserable life if I did not give my heart to Jesus that day. And something was different. He said, I knew this, for all worldly purposes, stupid man who gave a terrible message and poorly delivered invitation was completely right. And so I did. 
This is the man who came to know and communicate the gospel and was considered the most prolifically fruitful preacher of his day in London and across the globe. People would come to hear this person preach by the thousands, some just to hear him pray. He had a way of getting you to feel as if he understood your very problem and point you to the answer. He helped people see God for who he was, not what they had made him to be. Before long, he came to know God as the only one who can go with you to the edge of life and not lose his grip. To really know and experience, I will not, I will not, I will not relax my hold on you and as a young preacher this barely 20 years old this man was newly married with a wildly effective ministry and vibrant popularity which brings forth fruit but also brings out the ugly and there were so many who wanted to hear him they rented a venue to hold 12,000 people the service was underway on this particular evening and during his prayer several malicious troublemakers planned this scenario and they began shouting fire the galleries are giving way the place is falling even though there was no fire hundreds had their clothes torn from their backs and endeavored to escape in the panic this preacher attempted to calm the commotion but in the process seven people were trampled to death trampled to death and 28 were hospitalized the preacher was totally undone more dead than alive himself and was literally carried from the pulpit and taken to a friend's house where he remained completely wracked with guilt and in a deep depression he says this he said i refuse to be comforted tears were meat by day and dreams my terror by night I felt as if I never felt before. He said, My thoughts were all a case of knives cutting my heart to pieces. Even the sight of the Bible brought me a flood of tears and utter distraction of mind. The newspapers added to his distress. They said, Mr. Spurgeon is a preacher who hurls damnation at the heads of his sinful hearers, a ranting charlatan. And by all accounts, it is said it might well seem that the ministry which promised to be so largely influential was silenced forever. Charles Spurgeon, this preacher, was made to stop by force, just like what we read happening to the exiles returning to build the temple. But then Haggai showed up by the word of the Lord, bringing needed encouragement and direction and the same sort of thing happened to Spurgeon if he had not had elders around him to encourage him to stick with it to show him who God really was and what he had in store for Spurgeon's life he is sure by his own testimony to have walked away instead the difficulties pushed Spurgeon closer to the Lord so that he came to see God as greater rather than lesser because of this horrific event. It's as if it sent him to the very bottom of his box, asking, how could God let this happen? Why would he do this? No God would do this. Not this. And now he's got this boulder across the room that he's got to fit inside his shoebox. And it just doesn't fit. Something must give. Understand, this is a man living, thinking, and engaging with the culture in a messy downtown life of London. In his lifetime, you have Karl Marx, you have the Civil War, and you have 
Darwin's origin of the species, along with the dawning of liberal theology in his own backyard. This is not an ignorant man holed up in a monastery singing songs of yesteryear. Afterwards, this is what he says. He says, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, not sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. In other words, to say, I have a God who says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, the kind where any power that comes against you must get permission to claim any hair on your head. Nothing is by chance. No tragedy gets by him in your life as if he wasn't looking or paying attention or isn't familiar with all your pain. Spurgeon's God does not fit in a box, but he learned this with the help of his friends and the word of the Lord. He came to know Jesus as the only one who can save to the uttermost. And this is what the writer of Hebrews articulates in in chapter 7. He says, Consequently, Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost, perfectly, completely, finally, and for all time, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Spurgeon returned to his hurting congregation after this event, not long after the tragedy, hurting himself, filled with all sorts of competing thoughts, anxieties, and emotions, and he began to pray over his congregation these words. We are assembled here, Lord, today with mingled feelings of joy and sorrow. Your servant feared that he should never be able to meet this congregation again. What I think you and I need to see is that bad stuff has been happening to people who did not deserve it, who did not go seeking it, who were completely in the center of God's will when everything was made to come to a complete halt out of their control for centuries. Having the same ramification, horrible fears, consuming doubts, so much that powerhouses of faith and the very people of God are tempted to turn aside. It's a familiar tactic used against us to to sabotage our faith. Recognize it with me today for what it is. The exiles found out that God was with them. He had purpose and plans for them, which he had perfectly equipped them. So they threw out their small visions of God and got to work. And they finished the temple, Ezra tells us, by the decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, in the sixth year of Darius. That's when it happened. They actually completed what God had called them to do. They did it. When Spurgeon did not have the strength or courage or belief enough to seek the Lord, his friends helped him find the way. That's what friends do. They helped him seek the Lord when he found himself at the bottom of an empty box with a boulder in the room that was not going to fit inside. Later, he could testify these words, I have gone to the very bottoms of the mountains, as some of you know, in a night that never can be erased from my memory. But... As far as my witness goes, I can say that the Lord is able to save unto the uttermost and in the last extremity, and He has been a good God to me. Charles Spurgeon, the exiles, countless others we don't have time to mention, all find these truth statements to be unshakable realities, that God will not, will not, will not fail you in any degree, leave you helpless or forsake you, nor relax his hold on you, that he is able to save you to the uttermost. These lived out realities that likely would not have chosen for themselves, but they allowed God to exceed their trouble, 
their fears, their doubts, and whatever small beliefs they had held previously to embrace becoming what he wanted them to become. Your God may fit in a box, but the God of the Bible does not. Ask your questions. There's nothing in here to be afraid of. Find a friend. Get godly counsel. Read your Bible, but don't carry him around in a box. Be a friend. Get equipped. Believe again that God can make you what you ought to be. It's been a joy to bring this message to you today. And I look forward to being with you again next week on the Stirring Faith Podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Stirring Faith Podcast. We plan to release a new episode once a week. And I would invite you to become a subscriber because it makes it so much easier. Please remember to rate, review, and share the podcast. You may never know the difference that you can make by just making a recommendation and sharing a resource. So please pass along what you find here. Don't keep it to yourself. It's so easy to do. Post it from Spotify into your stories. I would personally be grateful. And remember, there is more truth-saturated, gospel-centered, spiritually insightful resources at your fingertips. Just go to www.sheyearns.com where you're going to find more reading plans, videos, articles, and other resources, more than there's ever been before, to help stir more desire for God into your everyday life. I'm Cherry Strange, and it is always a pleasure to meet you here.